I'm John Doberstein, Senior Editor at No-Till Farmer, and welcome to the latest edition of our 2019 No-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Boosting Productivity in Your No-Tilled Soils with a More Efficient, Effective Fertility Program, is sponsored by Yeter Manufacturing. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank Gitter Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. With a tradition of providing farmers solutions since 1930, Gitter Manufacturing is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer, and products to meet harvest time challenges, Yetter delivers the return on investment in tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at yetterco.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O.com. With profit margins running tighter, it's more important than ever for no-tillers to utilize fertilizers more efficiently. The best way to do that is by choosing the right product and application method for the situation, says Jim Leverich. The veteran Sparta, Wisconsin no-tiller and on-farm research coordinator for the University of Wisconsin will discuss a three-part plan that includes frequent soil testing, proper fertilizer selection, and appropriate application technologies that can help you boost soil productivity and allow crops to access nutrients more efficiently, all while reducing the risk of leaching and waste. Okay, I'm going to spend quite a bit of time on fertility as I go through, but I want to hit a few points here, um, things that I think are really important to uh, consider as you're moving forward about no-tilling and how it can impact your farm. I started back in 1984 no-tilling when I came back from uh, graduate school. My dad was a real conservationist and had done a little bit of no-till, but not a lot. And this is just a picture of our farm. Just to show you that this uh, corn crop here in the bottom of the picture is actually on a one and a half percent organic matter soil. And the stuff that's in the bigger flats there is, is in uh, something that's two and a half, three percent organic matter. So our farm is very diverse and now in the last couple of years we've picked up acreages that are in the five percent organic matter. So we farm everything from really heavy good soils to uh, more challenging soils. And when I started out farming, we had a lot more of those challenging soils, so we had to do things that would save our water and save our soil. And so thinking back, you know, the old Natural Resources Conservation Service is named that today, but in the old days it was named the Soil and Water Conservation Service. So remember, the water is just as important as the soil in saving that. So some of the things that I you know, always have goals in mind or things that you have to think about when you're going to no-till or do any kind of farming is that there's certain things that make it successful and certain things that can cause you to have a failure. I probably should have compaction up here as another thing, but these are the items that I pay very close attention to to be successful at no-tilling. As those first two speakers today were talking about, it's all about getting that seed in the ground and started doesn't really matter uh, so much what the uh, soil moisture is and the temperature and all that stuff. We hear all that stuff over time, but if you can get that seed in the ground and get it established and get it growing and get some nutrients near it, it's really going to take off. So you really don't need to worry about that so much. I think that third item, which I'm going to talk about more later, 
this placement, the sources, and the timing. A lot of times the sources that we're using may not be adequate for our region or where our farming system is. You've got to think about how you're going to get that fertilizer to last. So I'm not going to be up here today telling you what rate you should put on. It's really dependent if we walk your farm on all these other factors that are when is that fertilizer going to be released and used by your crop and how can it access that fertilizer. Hybrid and variety section selection are extremely important to you. You really have to be picking the hybrids that are going to make you the money. So every year I spend a considerable amount of time planting plots to get the right hybrids and varieties that perform the best on my farm. Row spacing and population, I've done a lot of work with that. Marion Calmer sitting up here years ago, we went around to all the universities and to some of the uh, seed companies and we tried to get them to look at different types of row spacings and populations. But a lot of them are kind of ingrained in the old research plot methodology. So the neat thing that we have today is we need to collaborate with our universities and with our companies and our farmers. That's what all these on-farm type things that we do so that we learn from each other and we learn the most when we, when we get out of our element and work together on that. So what we found is that in the early row spacing stuff, these guys had planters that weren't designed to plant narrow row corn. They were driving on all the corn. So I always challenged them, okay, if you're gonna plant your 30 inch corn, use a Kinsey planter and use the inner plants and plant your corn with those and drive on all the corn and see how good a result you get. I used to, as a young scientist, when I, when I came out of graduate school, you know, I'd always read the results of any research study. And that was important, but then I forgot that the most important part was the materials and methods. You, you know, most people jump to the results, but the most important thing is figure out what they were doing to get those results. So you can learn that on your farm. So that's what on-farm research is all about. Figuring out what you're doing and how it comes to a result on your farm. Precision farming, you're all using that stuff. And it's really important. It gives you some tools. Yield monitoring was the first thing. <laughs> and you can measure your yields and your hybrids. You can do all kinds of on-farm testing now. So I came from a dairy background. Many of you probably did. The DHI program, the Dairy Herd Improvement, was the biggest field study that the university system ever developed. And I'm frankly surprised that the USDA has not jumped on precision farming and gathered all this data in a non-biased way so that we would have a program like the DHI program that would record the yields and the inputs of every acre that's planted in this country. But it hasn't happened yet. I don't know if it ever will. Companies are doing it. They're, they're grabbing your data, your intellectual data. They're storing it away. But there's a huge opportunity for us to share all this data in a non-biased way, but we're not doing it yet. Variable rate application, I'll talk a little bit about that. And guidance, guidance to me is the biggest residue management tool you have available to you. So here's a field where residue is, you know, it's really an issue. It's a, it's a great thing though. Everybody comes up and they says that residue is terrible. I think residue is my best friend. It saves the soil. It provides a way to build terraces in the field. I don't grind my residue down like this anymore. I try to pick the corn as high as I can. Residue is really uh, integral to your fertility system because it can tie up nutrients, which is, is that good or bad? It can be good too. 
because it's holding those nutrients for later. You really got to think about what are you trying to accomplish when you run that corn planter through the field to plant that crop. Do you want to be competing with this or do you want to have controlled traffic with your GPS so you know where you planted last year and you can come in and your planter can run in an area where it's not competing with all the crowns or it's also running in an area that's near the fertilizer that you put there. So one of the best investments I ever made was going from to a non, uh, I went to RTK and spent another 4,000 bucks and another 500 bucks a year for subscription so that now I can control where the planter goes. Of course, in the contours, that's a challenge, but there's still a nudge button. So if you are perceptive of what you're doing in the planter, you can still work with that. You see everybody talking about row cleaners. There's uh, two styles, three styles of row cleaners. That's the first style I used, okay? And I used it with a coulter because I had a planter that had the 15 degree opener and it was necessary to help that planter through the soil without beating it up to run a very narrow coulter and a row cleaner. So then when I moved to 20 inch rows, it became a real challenge to move residue to get it out of the way so I could apply fertilizer and so that I could get a good stand. Well, this was an excellent row cleaner on my Kinsey planter. It's the only row cleaner I could put on my front fold because it wouldn't fit with the frame. And this was the old style Yetter cleaner. I had two planters in the field running the same day and this sucker would never plug up. This one would. I think part of it was it's not necessarily the manufacturer, it was the style of the coulter. This coulter cut the trash before it was going through the planter, and so there was nothing to hold on to that trash when the row cleaner wanted to move it out of the way. So you could go through anything with this other style, and this one you couldn't. So simple thing like that, but it made huge differences in the performance of my system because I couldn't move the trash, and I spent all day out there cleaning up my piles of trash and my, my landlord was running the old planter and he's going right through anything. Okay, now that we've moved to a, a newer case planter, we haven't been using the coulter, so we've gone to these uh, shark tooth row cleaners and we didn't have any mechanism except to pin them to control their depth, so we had them floating the first year and I would never recommend that. I like to have control of the row cleaner, so now we have the air system on there which I've only used one year, but in the first year I used it, it seemed to work well. So I can't tell you a definitive answer, but it seemed to work well for me. And part of the reason you want that row cleaner is something like the guy just said this morning in the other talk, Ray McCormick is putting his fertilizer on the surface instead of using a coulter that will put the fertilizer in the ground. There's a lot of research out of Minnesota that's been done by Dr. Kaiser, who's the recent scientist, and then an older gentleman that was there that did a lot of that research with Jeff Vetch. If you're interested in starter fertilizer, look up Jeff Vetch, University of Minnesota Southeast Regional Research Station. He has lots of good information on all kinds of different starter combinations, which I'll show you a little bit later. Okay, so our goal now today when we're planting is that we're using uh, GPS to plant right down the middle of where we were. Those corn stalks there, uh, they're another tool that I just bought at the local farm. They are my elevator. They pull all that trash through that corn planter. So those corn stalks that are standing, the ones that are on, that are ground up and put on the ground, so I pick as high as I can, 
Those I want chopped up fairly fine so that they're easy to move, but those corn stalks are my elevator. And you think about that, that's a way to pull all that trash through your corn planter. Another thing is with a corn planter, always buy too big a corn planter, okay? Not because of the weight, you want to make sure it's balanced well and that it's a planter that is not going to cause compaction, but you want a planter that you can go out there when you should be planting corn. You can't plant in those kind of stalks in an early heavy dew or late in the evening. You need to manage your planting time so that the planter's not plugging up and not, uh, you want the planter to work right. Think about that when you purchase your planter. You also think about, okay, that's a huge investment, but it really isn't because you, you can get so many more acres done with less hours on your tractor, less hours on your planter. It's a lifetime investment to buy a good planter and outfit it. So it's really not as expensive as you might think it is. But when you get to these bigger planters, then you've got to start building your own stuff. So this tank system we put on this planter. Really, I don't understand why, but planting companies have not done a very good job of outfitting planters with fertilizer systems. They really haven't. They, they're still back 50 years ago. So you see a new planter like this morning that Ray had that's addressing that. But really, we've, we're starting to get to that, but we really haven't addressed it well. And it's probably because most farmers aren't no-tilling, and so they're not seeing the benefit of starter fertilizer. Or maybe they just haven't realized the benefits because they're not doing a good enough job of farming to get the benefit out of them. Okay, so there's a picture of the stalk still standing in between the soybeans. And there's the stand we got because we cleaned the soil, the residue appropriately to get a good soil to seed contact. The other reason that I want that planter to have a good row cleaner, and this is a concern in 20 inch rows, is that I want those gauge wheels to be running on a non-bumpy surface. I want that gauge wheel so that planter's never bouncing. I had Daryl come out one year before we did a story and we intentionally planted right down the row on the crowns, even with the row cleaner, versus next to it. So the row cleaner is ripping out the, all the, uh, the uh, soil root balls. So now what do you have? You got these big divots in the ground that aren't filled in with soil, and you're trying to plant into that because you ripped the root ball out. So you got a great row cleaner. It cleans everything out, including all the roots, and now you can't get a good surface to plant in. So really think about what you're trying to accomplish and how precision ag can help you. So you want a nice, even stand with even years. Probably didn't plant that field heavy enough that I got complete tip fill on that corn, but that's another issue. Everything that I do on my farmers, like these last two farmers that talked to, talk to you this morning, every field has got some kind of research activity going on in it so that I can assess populations, nitrogen rates, uh, different hybrids, so I put these hybrids in my plot, but I also test them within fields by having uh, multiple hybrids. And then I learn more about the soil type and, and the soil productivity across the farm. This is just an example showing a yield map. So on my farm, there's a, there's a red strip in here. This whole farm was, uh, had 100 pounds of ammonium sulfate, 100 pounds of potash broadcast, about 135 pounds anhydrous except for the, where that red strip was. And there we put on about 80 pounds anhydrous and then we came back with 28% when the corn was about 10 inches high. So on my farm in that particular year, this is just an example and I've done this several times, my pre-plant anhydrous always out yields my side dressing. 
but there's a couple important things with the pre-plant anhydrous. I have to make sure I have adequate nitrogen near the seed, otherwise that anhydrous is so stable in a 40-inch band, there's so much concentration, it's slowing down the microbial activity to break that anhydrous down to a, to a mobile form that the crop was deficient of nitrogen if I hadn't put some other source just besides that 100 pounds of AMS. So I've gone to a liquid system, which I'll show you. The other thing is that yield monitor is showing you yields. And, and you got to remember that that yield right there is not exact. Because as the combine's going up and down these hills or around corners and, and through different soil areas, depending on how fast you push the hydro, those kinds of things, that shoe is not going to have the same amount of grain in it all the time. So you're not going to get a true reading if you're really trying to use variable rate technology on what the grain flow is in a particular area. Because I'll have fields where that grain flow, where there's sandy knobs, where that grain production could be 50, 60 bushels different than it is in another area. Okay, and so it's important to delineate that. So now you've got a lot of other tools to do that. You've got the infrared imaging and the drone technology and a good soil sampling. So yield maps to me are important, but I don't like to work off of the 10-year average yield map. That doesn't tell me anything. It's just an average. I want to look at specifically what's happening to that field over time. Okay, so here's just an example. I did it in 2007 so I don't get in trouble with any companies. But these are all the hybrids that I had planted that year in a replicated plot. So I replicate all my studies. And then I also now, with the technology we have today, I can split out the yield maps by soil type and look at how these particular hybrids tested across the field. So most university studies or controlled studies are all about no variation in a field. Well, on your farms, you can create all kinds of variation as long as you control it. In other words, if you know where the differences are in your field as you go across it in the productivity or soil type. And with today's data capture, you can split that out and learn from it. So you, can be, you, could, have, you could have these corns planted across three soil types in the same field and you can learn about how those corn hybrids respond to those three soil types or soil productivity range. Okay, you don't have to do a standard trial like they used to. We'll rejoin Jim's conversation about no-till soil fertility practices in a moment, but I'd like to thank Eater Manufacturing for sponsoring today's episode. With a tradition of providing farmers solutions since 1930, Gator Manufacturing is your answer for tools and equipment to face today's production agriculture demands. From many different designs of planter attachments for the different planting conditions you face, to several options of equipment for placing fertilizer and products to meet harvest time challenges, Gator delivers the return on investment and tools to meet your equipment needs and maximize inputs. Find solutions to your challenges today at GitterCo.com. That's Y-E-T-T-E-R-C-O dot com. Now let's get back to Jim Leverage as he discusses the importance of understanding the chemical and physical characteristics of no-tilled soils as the foundation of improving fertility management and soil productivity, including the proper use of soil sampling and other technologies available today that can help no-tillers manage nutrients more effectively. 
normally, you know, most people would think that your soil type and texture, your soil sampling points, those are all important. Uh, that's a real important thing that we'll talk about, how you can take information and put it together to determine what the nutrient level of your soil is and how much capacity it has to grow a crop. But then you have to stop, start talking about the fertility needs and the use of those nutrients. When are they being harvested in your field? Okay, what is Mother Nature doing to that as far as her adding water to your fields? And then you have to think about how you're going to time and place those nutrients and how you can use the new technologies to help you do that. So first thing that happens when you get a planter home is you have to build some equipment to put on it so that you can actually uh, get the job done that you want to do. Now, here's a picture showing you that just because a certain soil type might go across a field, so this farm here has stuff anywhere from 1% organic matter over about here, and it comes through here in a band. This field is a really good field because you can learn a lot of stuff off this field in a hurry because we're planting it this way. So as long as we know what this is, in relation to this, but look at the soil potassium, it's not related to this at all. The fertility map of the soil potassium level doesn't match the soil type stuff at all. So remember that this precision farming stuff is all about knowing a lot about different layers of information and then developing a way to decide how you're going to use that information. So you could throw your yield map on here too and you know all kinds of other factors organic matter, uh, those types of things. So here's your plant. Just think about what the access of fertilizer is with this big plant compared to this little plant. Okay, so with no-till farming, you have a colder environment. Plant will, the crop will grow, but the soil microbes are not as active, and the opportunity for stuff to go from a uh, chemical form into a soil nutrient that's absorbable by your crop is, is not near as uh, widely available in a no-till system as it is if you're out there tilling it up and changing the temperature of the soil way earlier. So what you're trying to do is you need to feed with some sort of possibly a pop-up and also some sort of fertilizer near the seed. The old two-by-two two system was what was the most common. Here's an old study put out by the Leopold uh, Center, which basically showed us way back when that no-till it performed just as well as these other tillage methods as long as you had a broadcast, some sort of uh, placement of fertilizer near the seed. Whereas the other systems didn't necessarily need that, but way back when, when all these guys were starting, they still had the same conclusion that we do today, that we have to have a broadcast plus a planter band to get the best performance out of no-till. Okay, so some of the chemical and physical characteristics of your soil are the foundation for the productivity of that soil. So the organic matter, the water holding capacity, the structure, the sand, silt, and clay, you know, how does that impact the way you farm that soil? It's a little different in every case, but actually after doing no-till for 35 years, it's about, once you get that soil neutralized and in a no-till program, it's amazing what it'll do. You know, I really don't think there's a yield drag associated with no-till, a lot of people will tell you that but I think that's just management drag. If you can get into a field and you work with a good no-tiller that knows what he's doing, you are not gonna have any yield drag. 
you are going to have the opportunity to have yields that are more excessive than were there in the past system. So the soil life thing, it's really important. It grows and it helps to enhance you, but I just think that you, you become better farmers because of the soil biology and those things that are all working in your favor. So the physical attributes, the texture, the slope, the water holding capacity, to me it's all about water. I think the whole, whole thing is about saving that water. If you have excessive water in a field, then you need to tile. If you, you need to save water for that crop to use at certain times of the year. And then you need to start thinking, some of our latest research at the university where we've been looking at nitrogen, variable rate nitrogen studies, is we're starting to do three-dimensional soil testing. We, we have a machine that goes out with a sonar, and it's like conductivity and sonar, and we use those two methodologies to help us to figure out what areas of the field may or may not be common with each other so that we can afford to do more sampling intensively. If you guys were each an acre out here, the first time I got on this field with you, I'd want to sample every one of you. I'd want to know exactly what I've got out here one time. Once I know that five of you are the same and 10 of you over there are the same and 15 over here pretty much have the soil, same soil attributes, then I can take you five and instead of taking five samples there, I can take three samples at different depths and I can start to learn about what's happening with those nutrients. You're not just farming the top six inches. And in fact, maybe our regulations today are all built off these six inch layers. So we need to get our regulators to start thinking about, do we really have a soil phosphorus problem in the top six inches or where's that phosphorus going? And the only way we're gonna know that is if we start to sample deeper over a period of time to start to understand where our nutrients are moving. This talk is not giving you specifics, it's trying to open your mind about thinking how you can address your fertility system differently, just like the early no-tillers. There's still a bunch of people out there who think we're nuts, that we're no-tilling, but good luck with staying in farming over the time. So you could use grid or, soil, grid or zone soil sampling, but like I said, I prefer to go into a field, sample the heck out of it the first time, so I know what I've got. Now I can use that information to determine where I should sample the next go around. And you can use your soil type, topography. Those types of maps are all good, but a lot of those soil maps were built years ago, 50 years ago, and so we don't have good delineation of where those soil zones are changing. So if we use the information we have through the other mapping types of services we have today, we can start to better delineate these areas in the field. Okay, yield maps, infrared imaging, water holding capacity, where that could be used. We did a lot of work with irrigating manure products in one of my studies, and we've gotten these uh, little sensors you can put down in the soil. And so I, that'll be one of the next things I'll do on our farm is to start installing those on my different soil types in my different um, farms that have, so I can use those as a monitor to figure out what happened last year to my soil moistures through the summer compared to over a period of time and I can learn how my fertility system is being affected by that. So I guess that's probably why John Deere bought onto that and you know and they have soil, they have these soil stations or weather stations in the fields. So this is the, uh, the type of soil probe that these guys are using and they charge quite a bit, about 10 bucks an acre to come out 
well, I should say more than, it, it's probably about 10 bucks an acre when you average it out. They'll only sample maybe every five, 10 acres. But then they'll do an intensive sampling of your soil and tell you where your texture levels are. First time I saw this kind of stuff being done was out in Kansas, actually. There's a group of Kansas on-farm researchers out there that have been doing this kind of stuff for years. They take out soil probes and they, um, they weren't so much testing all the soil, they were just looking at the structure and the texture of the soil where they were looking at. Now here's a slide I produced a while back that showed why it was important to grid sample versus sampling the old method. This is a two acre grid sample versus a 7.7 or roughly eight acres of sample. If you can see, the average potassium on this soil test were about the same, but the standard deviation and the, the total variation was quite a bit different. And the actual fertility requirements for that field, the amount of potash that was put on there, was almost exactly equal. But then if you took and you broke them down here and looked at the samples in the high, low, in Wisconsin they would say that if you're at optimum, you, you, you don't need, if you're above optimum or high, you don't need to add any fertilizer. So when we got into these eight, $900 potash times, they would have recommended that you didn't put any fertilizer on because there was no need for it because 70% of the samples were high. But then if you grid sampled it, you'd find that almost 50% of the field needed fertilizer. You never would have known that if you'd used the old sampling system. Soil sampling is cheap relative to the cost of inputs and the potential for losing yield over time. Another picture here, this shows the soil sampling levels of K. Obviously the uh, prescription matches that, but the yield map doesn't match that at all. So that's an important concept to remember that the yield map, if you drive your fertility recommendations off the yield map, you're going to be way off because over time, when you keep putting on the same amount of fertilizer all the time and you're not pulling off the same amount of yield across this field that you prescribed a fixed rate, you're just going to end up building areas of the field that don't need building and you're going to short areas of the field that need more fertilizer. If you're listening to this podcast and it's got you thinking about additional ways to improve soil fertility on your no-till operation, Check out the articles, ebooks, blogs, podcasts, and videos available on No-Till Farmers' website. Whether it's precision technology, using proper soil sampling methods, or simply just understanding the role soil biology plays in nutrient cycling, you can find the answers to your soil fertility questions at www.no-tillfarmer.com. Now we'll conclude this podcast as Jim Leverage discusses how he installed an efficient nutrient delivery system on his planter, including tips on how he added variable rate fertilizer application technology on his planter for only $2,000 with a dry spreading module, motor, flow control valve, and SMS software. Here's an example of a fertility system that we put together of how much fertilizer to put on. So we were using 100 pounds of potash in corn along with ammonium sulfate because we weren't applying any potash. Normally you'd say in a no-till system you'd like to apply potash two by two. And with the older dry fertilizer systems and now the liquid, you can do that but it kind of gets expensive. 
what we do to offset that is we raise the potash level in the soil to 125 to 150 parts per million, where the recommendation in our state would generally be 125 parts per million. So we, we elevate the potash level to the point that it's more available, and we broadcast potash. So that's something I'm going to be experimenting more with in the future is adding potash to the two by zero placement of fertilizer. Okay, but anyhow, you can see the rate of potash that we're putting on relative to the, the uh, parts per million. Okay, the parts per million, if we're way up. We also, even at a real high parts per million, you need to think of your fertility program is a risk. Everything you do in farming is risky. So even though the potash is really high on some of my soils, I'll still feed some potash to the crop because I'm afraid that in those colder, wetter soils that that potash isn't going to be released quite as fast. So I don't take, if I have plenty of potash out there, I still feed the crop a little potash and I try to draw my soil tests down slower than all at one time because I don't want the risk of not having that nutrient available enough for that no-till crop. You don't have to necessarily, if variable rate technology is too expensive for you and, and the, you don't feel that you can afford to pay for it at the co-op to have them come in and do the, the spreading, then if you already have a yield monitor, which I had an ag leader, I went out and bought a $1,000 dry spreading module. Then I went and bought a $300 hydraulic motor and then I purchased a $500 Raven flow control valve. So for 2000 bucks, I was set up to put on variable rate technology. So I just run the, run the prescriptions through the SMS software, put the prescriptions in, and now I'm off spreading variable rate. Okay, so sometimes I, I put my potash on in the spring because uh, potash is fairly soluble, and a lot of people put it on in the fall, but it depends where you live and your climate. Um, I'm afraid I'm going to lose too much uh, ammonium sulfate if I put it on in the, in the fall. So I put it on in the spring with my potash. So again, think about when you put that fertilizer on, where it's going to be when the crop needs it and what you can do about that. So I'll talk a little bit now about the fertility system I'm using. So basically I'm going out there and I'm oversampling a field and then I'm creating these zones and then I'm doing a little bit more uh, 6 inch and then 6 to 12 inch sampling. And then what I'm doing is I'm setting up my fertilizer requirements for P and K to variable rate those on. And so my first pass in the spring is to go out and variable rate on my potash on my soybean fields. And then on my corn fields I'm putting on potash and ammonium sulfate as a, as a uh, starter. And then, then I go out with my GPS and RTK and I apply anhydrous ammonia and I apply that in 40 inch bands and I plant 20 inch uh, rows around it. That's so that I've concentrated my nitrogen source so it will last longer. I'll put NSERV with it just as a risk uh, tool because the last couple of years we've had torrential rains. And then I will put um, on the corn planter Oh, I could talk about this a little bit. On the corn planter, I go to starter placement. So these are all the options. The two by two, blow seed placement, in row pop up, over the row banding, surface dribble, and banding under the row. These are kind of all the accepted practices. 
And like I said, the University of Minnesota did a bunch of work on it. And they basically came up with the fact that uh, two by zero placement on top of the soil was just as efficient as putting it down below. So think about all the residue management issues and the weight of all those openers and repairs and all that stuff. This system truly does work for me. It may not work for you, you'll have to try it, but it works for me. I don't have all that extra equipment on my planter. Now I'm putting on my fertilizer in that two by zero. I'm using three gallons of ammonium thiol sulfate to get my sulfur and some uh, ammonium, and then five gallons of 28%. So that in a 20 inch row is two thirds the rate of a 30 inch row. So if you're in a 30 inch row, you might be able to cut that back a little bit at that time of the year. Okay, then I'm also using a pop-up fertilizer. So, and I've been doing tests now the last two years with running it with and without pop-up and running different rates of, of starter fertilizer on the back. So I change those rates as I go across the field and I'm trying to determine what is the most efficient. I also have a spreadsheet that I wrote that in comparison to dry fertilizer, using this liquid system, I think it costs me about $5 an acre in fertilizer cost. So because I'm using a liquid versus a standard of anhydrous or dry fertilizers, it's about a $5 cost to doing that. Okay, as far as in the row on the case planter, I can't get a tube unless I were to put it on the seed. So I learned this from a farmer in Illinois. Basically, this is the firming point. The, co the seed disc, cutter disc is off of here. There's the bearing for it, or for the gauge wheel. So anyhow, this is the seed firmer right here. And we just took a little piece of quarter inch anhydrous tube and we welded that to the firming point. And then we route that, a plastic line up along the seed tube. And that's how we apply our pop-up fertilizer so it's ending up under the seed. In the uh, earlier years I had both systems, but I always preferred a system that would put it under the seed rather than on the seed. I am kind of a probably different in that I've never had much success using firmers. I plant maybe a little slower, trying to eliminate the bounce in the planter, and I've never really seen any big advantage to firmers, so I never really had a way to put fertilizer on that way. I have down pressure, but no seed firmers. Down pressure I'm using, right now I'm just using an airbag system on the case planter. I haven't tried to use the, the new hydraulic system. I'm, I'm frankly, I don't know if that would benefit me much because I don't have, I think that system probably works more where there's tillage issues and things that they create in tillage. But our soils are so mellow that we really don't have an issue getting them in the ground. And because we're controlling the traffic with the residue, we're not fighting that either. So last year I really had to crank up the air pressure on the airbags to, for some reason last spring, planting, it was the soil was much harder than it was the previous year. And then we backed that off. When we got into the corn stalks, it wasn't as bad as the soybean stubble for some reason. We're running uh, five to seven. And so in a 30 inch row, that would be two thirds of that. You have to remember that our rates are, if seven gallons was high, it would only be seven and a half gallons would be equal to five in a 30 inch row. I'm running 10, 30, 4 -0. And I've tried some other starters, more expensive starters, and never really seen uh, an increase to it. 
And then off the back of the planter, I'm running these tubes which we, we made, and that's where we put our, uh, our, not our, ten, our urea, 28%, and our ammonium thiosulfate. No, it hasn't because I think the reason is that we're under the seed deep enough and our rate is not that high. I've never, and in fact, one year I had, uh, I had uh, on sandy soil, we put on, uh, we didn't plan on this, but something happened to the, one of the uh, pressure regulator gauges. That was back when we were using electric pumps. Now we're just using John Blue pumps, again, back to a piston pump. But we were putting 15 gallons on there and we didn't, we didn't hurt the seed, but that, that's because I think we were underneath it. Now, to me, the, the jury's still out on, you see a lot, of, a lot of companies selling the Y drops, and I haven't been able to try that yet, but this year I finally got a self-propelled sprayer, so I'm gonna start experimenting with using Y drops. Scientists that work at Minnesota, George Ream and Giles Randall, those two old guys, did tons of nitrogen work for 25 years. And they would always say that any kind of urea nitrogen, except at planting, when you usually get a good rainfall, should be injected in the ground or you're just going to lose too much. So we'll just have to see. The jury, to me, is still out. I think the biggest benefit they get out of that system is that they've predicted the loss of nitrogen based on the rainfall so that they can act, tell you how much nitrogen to apply. But whether that's a good methodology to put nitrogen on, I'm not sure, because I've got a couple friends that farm 3,000 acres that have been doing a similar system. They pick up a little yield, but never enough to offset the cost of doing it. They're putting down pre-plant anhydrous, and they've compared using pre-plant anhydrous to using other nitrogen sources. So. A lot of times I'll see a lot of broadcast nitrogen. And think about nitrogen. Nitrogen, the bacteria in the soil have to convert it to nitrate and nitrite to get it to move. If you put nitrogen in a concentrated band, just like any other fertilizer, it's just not going to move as fast because it takes those, it doesn't, the bacteria don't have near as much access to it. So whenever you broadcast something, you accelerated the rate at which it's going to go into soil solution, but you've also accelerated the rate of potential loss because now that nitrogen's in a form that if you get a lot of rain, it can be lost. That's part of the reason I've used anhydrous over the years. I've tried other systems, but I use it because I can hold on to the nitrogen longer. Now, I'm not saying that's the only right system, but that's why I use it, but that's why I had to go to a system that applied some nitrogen at the planter. And if you look at all the old research studies on putting what you put in a starter fertilizer, nitrogen always comes to the top, and usually, you know, phosphorus and potassium at a lower level. But nitrogen is still the big driver in that, in most cases. We'd like to sincerely thank Jim Leverage for sharing important tips and information about the different facets of an effective nutrient management system for successful no-till operations. To listen to more podcasts about successful no-till strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com slash podcasts. Again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Yader Manufacturing, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, feel free to drop me an email at jdoberstein at lessitermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2430. 
Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider Daily and Weekly Email Updates and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer, with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R, and our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For Jim Leverich and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Senior Editor John Dauberstein. Thank you for listening.